This episode of the Good Ship Brothership is brought to you by this episode of the Good Ship Brothership. This is my desktop. I the gar- garlic head doge. And yeah. then I looked in my picture file and like I had uh, I'm saying like too much. I had a bunch of Blade Runner stills in my desktop background thing. And I just thought, you know, it would simplify things if I just said to myself, okay, all of my all of my desktop backgrounds on this PC will be Blade Runner themed. Actually, I'm going to rearrange these so that it's like this. Okay, then let's start. Just to shake things up. Yeah, we, we've been rolling. Well, I know, but we're not. You're aboard the Good Ship Brothership, the only arts podcast that covers film, music, gaming, literature, and speed webbing. I'm Grant, and this is my brother, Jason. Jason, what are we going to talk about today here? Today we are talking about Goodwill Hunting, the movie which came out some time ago, and The Joshua Tree, an album which came out some time ago. And we're going to talk cursorily also on Lord's new single, Green Light. Oh, I don't have notes for that, but let's do it. I have no notes for that either because I completely forgot, but we can still... Let's try and keep it to just like a couple minutes. We can though. still talk about it in a civilized fashion. Now, just in the interest of making the show longer, I wrote a little something today that I uh, was wondering if I could read on Is the it show. a poem? Um, It's an anger poem. It's like two pages long. I'm not joking. Okay. Um, I'm going to probably eat some crappy chocolate while you do that. Go ahead. I'm going to... And then you'll be free to chime in after this. Okay. Hello, everybody. Let's dive right into this. There's never been a better time to create art. I hear this all the time. Friends, relatives, advertisements, acquaintances, and other artists all agree. But is it true? First off, it's hard to say. It's hard to exist as we do as humans in one time and place and to definitively state that this time and place... (laughs) Okay, don't... Okay. Do not laugh that loud because we don't have the cloud lifter hooked up. It's gonna, and you've completely derailed my like esoteric reading it is an with your absolute loserdom. Okay, okay, no, no, you're fine. I'm, I'm restarting. You shook me. We can cut it a little bit. No, we're not cutting that. We're not cutting out that disaster that just took place. Okay, this is Teelix completely unsteeped. No, well, that's fine. your fault, man. It's fine. It's good. It's good. Okay. There's never been a better time to create art. I hear this all the time, and this is true. Friends, relatives, advertisements, acquaintances, and other artists all agree. But is it true? First off, it's hard to say. It's hard to exist as we do as humans in one time and place and to definitively state that this time and place are in any way different from any of the others that have passed before. Here, however, is what I know. One. We are living in the most distracting day and age yet. Whether I'm sitting down to write a chapter or a riff, whether I'm recording a vocal take or fleshing out a piece of dialogue, I'm constantly pulled in all directions. I'm receiving messages on five different platforms at once. People are constantly flooding me with pictures of their lives. Do I care? Sort of. Should I? No. I should be working. Maybe I'll shop on Amazon for that CD I was wanting. Maybe I'll check Kijiji to see if there are any good prices on used Mexican-built Stratocasters. I should be recording that guitar track. Number two, 
We're living in the artistic gold rush. Hundreds of thousands of artists are uploading their work to the internet every day in the hopes of making it big. We squat next to each other. Only instead of ragged canvas tents, we're in Bandcamp and Facebook pages. Instead of pickaxes, we're all holding guitars. Instead of panning for gold, we're panning for likes and follows. Hopes are high, expectations are high. We're told by well-intentioned and under... (laughs) Whoa. We're, we're told by well-intentioned and utterly ignorant aunts and uncles, quote, put your music on YouTube. That's how everyone gets found these days, as if we just have to cast out our line into a teeming sea of fish. The sea is teeming with fish, but we're not the fishermen. We are the fish. Swimming gill to gill with a million others just like us and praying to be caught. Number three, everyone's selling something. Let's say I spend two years making an album, one year to write it, one year to record it. My band is in this process right now. We're pouring dozens and dozens and dozens of hours into what we think is going to be an exceptional result. Now let's say you take a picture of your cat. She was making a funny face because you don't know why, so you pulled out your phone and boom, moment captured. Time and resources invested, two seconds to take the picture, plus whatever you paid for your phone, assuming you paid for your own phone, and your internet, assuming you paid for that too. We both post at the same time, me, an announcement about my band's forthcoming album and how excited we are for it. You, the picture of your cat with a funny caption. Your post is junk food, sugary, sweet, instantly gratifying. Mine is a full full gourmet meal. Much more time and energy and effort have gone into mine and therefore it requires a much greater investment to appreciate and uh, digest, aka read. Both of our posts are equal in the land of social media. Neither is presented as being more or less valuable or important. And maybe that's true. But that's still what I say when people tell me how important Facebook is for my career success. And lastly, we're all entitled. Everyone feels like they've already earned it. And that goes for your music too, or your book, or your photography, or whatever. No one wants to be told that they have to pay for anything anymore, especially, in my case, of course, music. A dollar for a song that you spent three months writing and recording? A little steep. Five dollars for a coffee that they'll drink and piss out in three hours? Only every day. I know I haven't gotten into why this era is amazing for creating. I haven't talked about the absolute lack of barriers about the wild ocean full of mind-boggling new ideas that the internet is, or about how I can live in rural Ontario and have fans in Texas, fans who I'm connected to and with whom I can discuss my work. There's good out there too, don't get me wrong, but never a better time, I'm not sold on that. That was just something I wrote today. Just because I saw an, an advertisement on Facebook that literally said there has never been a time better time there has never been a better time to create music that's and difficult. it just it just kind of got me thinking you know that's a difficult statement too though because i think the question that you or the statement you were answering is more like there's never been a better time to have a career in music um which i think is True. kind of a different thing altogether like i think creating art like today for me from even from like a visual perspective Everyone has a smartphone with a good camera. Everyone has the tools to take beautiful pictures. 20 years ago, 30 years ago, you have your little Polaroid. Mm -mm. You know, like for that, I think it is a great time to be a photographer. But then the real question is, does the mass proliferation and 
ubiquity and accessibility of art make art better? Or is it better to have, and I know it's been argued very convincingly too, and I'm not sold either way, but it's been argued very convincingly that yes, the complete elimination of the barrier to entry is better, but I I would also postulate that it might be worse because then you don't really have to want it as badly to get into it, you know? Yeah, the difficult thing there is, um, as a photographer, I feel that, like, social media, you know, Instagram, say, kind of sucks because there's a lot of stuff that I don't think has as much value. But then at the same time, like, who am I to judge art or, or, or to be a gatekeeper of who should be able to make art and who shouldn't? And so I think it's really nothing but a good thing, even though it kind of does dilute the pool of art. I, I think, whoops, I think the, uh, my main issue is the one that I said where, uh, social media, everything comes to social media equal, whether it is a, a cat meme or a, uh, engagement announcement or your band's new single or, uh, the announcement that y- you have cancer, like yeah. <laughs> literally, um, which you do and congratulations. Um, I'm so excited. Anyway, that's just a little topic for discussion. Today we're talking about the Joshua Tree. Are we we're talking about green light? Talking about Goodwill Hunting, and then at the very end of it, our little bonus feature will be Lord's newest single, Stay Green Light. Tuned. Stay tuned. Spoilers. It's not that. It's not that good. And I called this from a mile but away. But it's not that bad either. Spoilers. It's okay. Okay. Uh, let's. Um, I will flip the puppet this time to avoid any audio-related. Catastrophe. Um, the movie is going to end up being first. I want to throw that out there. Okay, well, which side should be the movie? If the puppet is facing down, if Oliver is facing down, then we will discuss the movie. If okay. Oliver is facing up, movie, we will discuss this. Yes, movie album. Indeed. Okay. Oh, we're, we're doing something a little new here, people, but new only conceptually speaking. Uh, we decided to do... A a couple discussions, they might not be in um, subsequent episodes, they might just be scattered about, but we kind of decided to approach several discussions differently, and we're going to call these in-reviews. And the premise of this is, um, and we I would totally encourage you guys to do this too, uh, because it's been really fun for me, I don't know about you Jason, mm-hmm. but to go back to a favorite book or album, or film, or game, and go go through it again, something that you haven't experienced for a while, really sit down and immerse yourself in, in, uh, in it, <laughs> and think critically about it, think about what you thought of it uh, when you first discovered it, think about how you've changed since then, and just kind of catch up with it, and let it catch up with you. And uh, Jason and I did this with The Joshua Tree, which was an album um, that kind of changed uh, my my thoughts on music, my approach to music, and how I how I write music. Oh. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, I, we, I was probably big into it um, probably five years, years ago. When were we in B.C.? That was five years ago. Yeah, so five years ago, when I was huge into not not only uh, the Joshua Tree but U two uh, in general, 
but yeah, this album kind of really was a game changer for me, and so I thought, hey, let's revisit it and uh, talk about it critically for the first time. So I'm super excited. Did you have fun doing this? Yeah. Um, well, that's enthusiastic. I had trouble making a lot of notes on this just because I feel like it, it's not fresh because I've listened to it so many times. That's kind of the idea. Um, yeah. I would, however, like to draw attention. I'm really getting good at this whole podcast, like, uh, kind of note experience. Oh, wow. As I'm showing Grant. Good job. On the bottom half of my screen, I have my notes, and on the top half of my screen, I have the Wikipedia page. So I, I, I too, have the Wikipedia page for this I'm album. ready, but you don't have it for the movie. Yeah, I do. It's on my phone. Ah, oh, heck. Oliver Twist. Anyway, uh, <clears throat> do you want to go first, or do I want to go first? Why don't you go? I always okay. seem to be going first. So I actually did something without consulting you a little differently. Oh. And here's what I decided. Um, as the great president of the United States might say, the Joshua Tree, we all know it's great. I know it's great. You know it's great. Everyone knows it's great. Can we stop with... Can we, can we make a vow right now on this show that we will stop doing Trump jokes because they're tired and they're... They're tropes, Trump tropes, and I'm not entertained by them anymore. That's true. I do think the really tired out ones are just like the, uh, wall, uh, Canada, uh, Trump. Those are the ones where I'm like, wow, you're so... Also, okay. I'm warning you, I'm gonna need a drop of dookie at some point. Okay. I've just been going to the bathroom like... Cr- you know what? Nobody cares. No. Let's, let's move on. I care. Let's keep going. Okay. So, <laughs> what I decided to do, it's a great album. Everyone knows it's great. So I'm going to mostly actually focus on the negatives. So if you were to just listen to this, you'd almost think I didn't like it. Um, I love it, but I also kind of want to tear it apart a little bit. Um, First off, I feel like the album is like chronically front-loaded. Listen as I might to the later tracks. And there are some great tracks later on, you know, like uh, One Tree Hill or whatever is like awesome. But I think, like, you look at, here are the first four tracks, Where the Streets Have No Name, I Still Haven't Found What I'm Looking For, With or Without You, Bullet the Blue Sky. Like, these are all, like, classics, like, just these awesome, awesome songs. But then, like, I'm looking later, you know, Running to a Standstill, One Tree Hill, and Exit. Like, I mean, they're not exactly train wrecks, but well, what I kept coming back to is I don't think I've ever in my life been like, man, I could listen to Exit right now. Like, what a song. And I don't feel like it really adds to the other songs in the album either. I mean, it could be argued then as well that you can't really predict what songs are going to be commercially successful. So they may not have anticipated, you know, what do you, what do you think of that? Because really, really, out of those three, the or four that you mentioned there, only two of them went uh, huge as singles. So what's your point? I'm sorry? Well, two points. Uh, one, only two of those got big radio play as yeah. singles. And also, you can't really predict what songs, as an artist, are going to be uh, the favorites. I guess. I'm just talking about the songs that... Yeah, what I thought were great, and I'm just playing devil's advocate. I guess. Jason, I think it's a a trend that goes beyond coincidence when like basically all the songs in the first half of the album are better than the song of the second half. Um, I think like the Joshua Tree is a huge classic, 
Um, and I found I was almost loath to critique it. It took me a little while to work up the stamina, um, as it were. But then I started looking at it, and I was like, it's just, I actually put in my notes here, kill me for saying this if you want to. Um, and maybe I'm just saying it because it's such a classic. But my biggest criticism of the album, having listened to it a few times really critically, is it just sounds kind of bland, if I'm being honest. And maybe that's, like, because it inspired such a genre that then, like, the imitators make it seem, you know, like another one of them. Whereas it was the OG, maybe that's the case. But I just think it doesn't have, like, a wide enough variety of emotions and themes on display to be, like, this diverse, balanced album. But on the other hand, I don't think it has enough cohesion and, like, unity between tracks to stand as, like, a quote-unquote concept album either. Um, so that's really kind of all I have to say on it. I mean, for me, standout tracks have to be Bullet the Blue Sky. Um, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. is a huge classic. And I think One Tree Hill is a really, really great song, too. But yeah. I just want to butt in and say that it sold 10 million units in the United States of America. It also sold almost 3 million in the United Kingdom, so good on them. I, I'm just looking I, at the sales Germany here. bought a million. Like, so did we. So did Canada. Yeah, but we speak English. Germany, they don't even know what you two saying. I, I've got an interesting anecdote coming up. You think up they'd overdub German over the my, songs? Uh, <laughs> yeah, probably. Um, uh, how are you progressing through your review is this like the break in your review or are you finished your review no I'm finished I said I think that's all I have to say oh I see I see that was me trying to knock the ball into your court I'm sorry but I'm still probably going to butt into your review a bit with more positives because it is it's a great album so my my uh, three standout tracks uh, that I was going to pick Bullet the Blue Sky, mm-hmm. you know, which completely blew my mind. I don't really even know what it was about that song the first time I heard it. I think the the imagery that are that's in Bono's lyrics in that song, um, it really changed me as a lyricist because the images that he conjures up are so vivid to me. And they just sprung to life uh, in a way that really took me by surprise. And I completely remember we were in the truck in, uh, you know, the the KPL with the pool attached to it. Which one's that? Forest Heights? Yeah, that's Forest Heights. So the Forest Heights Zares. I totally remember pulling into the parking lot there with probably you and mom in uh, in the truck with Bullet the Blue Sky playing. I was in the front. And I was just enraptured by that song. It's one of those moments that you always and you you always will remember as the first time you heard that song, and it captured me uh, way more than say where the streets have no name. Yeah. Even though that's probably uh, probably U 2s most U two e song, where the streets have no name. That's fair though. Um, my second pick for that was One Tree Hill. Yeah, <laughs> which was a real sleeper for me because I remember listening to it mm-hmm. and uh, going eh, like I wish Bono wasn't doing the the screaming kind of thing. You know, as a vocalist, I could kind of like hear his throat closing up and 
it stresses me out when I hear people destroying their voice like I know he did. Um, but on this re-listening, it just kind of it kind of snuck up on me. I totally agree. The exact same thing happened to me. I was like, man, I for I don't know if I ever remembered how it, good this song. It was. really hit me, and yeah. and the fact too. Um, I don't know if you know this, but he wrote that song for his or in memory of his personal assistant. No, uh, who was like his his not like his best friend, but kind of kind of like his best friend. His personal assistant always with him. Uh, could confide in him all the time and they became like extremely close as you would to somebody like that and then he died unexpectedly in a motorcycle accident and Bono's marriage that year was like under a ton of strain Uh, the production of the Joshua Tree as as always kind of seems to be with these great albums was obviously very stressful and uh, so he was like just devastated and he wrote One Tree Hill in memory of of him because he was an indigenous uh, maybe he was indigenous to New Zealand. I think that might be where he came from. And they have a place called One Tree Hill where their funeral... I, I could be out of line on this, yeah. but I think it's something like that. Their funeral um, interesting processions end up at One Tree Hill or something like that. But anyway, so One Tree Hill, that was my second pick. And then the third one was With or Without You, which yeah. is probably the greatest pop song maybe. of all time. Maybe, probably, that build... It is right up there. That build is one of the best song builds I've ever heard. Not my favorite U2 song, though. Probably not for me either, but, like, in terms of just how good that song is as a song... Yeah. Whoa. Whoa, baby. Um, so I've, I've just got kind of a couple thoughts on this album... Uh, some of them echo your thoughts and some of them don't. My first one, I don't think that I understood at the first time, the first, with my first uh, flirtations of this album, I don't think I understood how much of a concept album it is. Okay, yeah, that's true. And the, the story for the, you complained about the disparate kind of sounding elements of the album, mm-hmm. which is totally the case, is that the edge wanted to take the album in a um Europop kinda kind of a direction. And uh Bono in this uh famous story of um hanging out with Mick Jagger and Keith Richards and the Rolling Stones, they they wanted to jam with Bono, this hot new singer, and so they started playing blues songs and asking him to, you know, improvise on them and stuff. And Bono had no idea what to do because he really had never listened to blues. <laughs> and so Bono went back and immersed himself in Irish folk music and went into his own root, like the roots of his country, musically speaking, and into America's roots as a country, musically speaking, folk, blues, all that sort of thing. So that's the two halves of the album mm-hmm. is the edges always, you know, he's always going for the future. He's always going for something technologically astounding and Bono was really reaching down for this kind of earthy uh, feeling and one of my thoughts as well was the exact same as yours man this album is off kilter these first few tracks are so can you pour me some more tea please they're not even it's not even that they're great songs necessarily it's just that they're and this might not make sense but they're perfect songs Uh like they're just the right length they're just the right tone um, to become hits. Yeah. 
and they put all of them in one spot. Now, I happen to know the... I know a lot about you two, okay? I've read multiple books. I happen to know the track listing was kind of not not really deeply thought out like you might think. I think that they had a little kind of like competition and it was somebody's girlfriend who suggested the track listing. So they all, you know, all the band members, all the studio crew, everybody sat down and made their own track listing. And then they, you know, listened through them all or whatever and this one was chosen as being the best. Yeah. Do I think it's a bad track listing? No. Um, but I think that um, it, it distracts... The first half, the first grouping, absolutely distracts everybody from the second half. Mm-hmm. And I think that the second half of the album is more rewarding to listen to than the first half. That's kind of what I what I um, settled on. And I think that... I don't know what it would have come out because it came out in '97, I believe. '87. That's what I meant. Jeez, you're saying Goodwill Hunting? Holy I think '97. No, I just knew. Se- I I was That's thinking. Cool. We're doing '87, '97, and 2017. Oh, I was I was thinking of. I thought '87. I said '97. Whatever, it doesn't matter. So I don't know if it would have come out. Prime. It must have come out primarily on uh, vinyl record then. And I I bet everybody listened through that first half of the... I have it on vinyl. I never listened to it on vinyl for the review process. Yeah, it's because you still haven't set up our vinyl, our turntable. It's set up, it just kind of doesn't work. It's not set up, Jason. If it doesn't work, it's not set up. I don't know what more... It's not set up properly. Yeah, so it's not set up. Anyway, enough about how you suck. I already hate Uh, myself enough. Yeah. Same. Uh, what was I going to say? Oh, yeah. So th- they do have a leg up on the, us in that sense where they could have turned over to the B-side and just listened through to those latter tracks. Um, I think, that I think like I just said, I'm reiterating as I try desperately to find the track listing here. You know, I, I, I would assume because it's 11 tracks... Um, Side one would be where the streets of no name still haven't found what I'm looking for, with or without you, both the blue sky and running the standstill. And then the second half would be Red Hill Mining Town, In God's Country, Trip Through Your Wires, One Tree Hill, Exit, and Mothers of the Disappeared. I think that that second half from track six to 11, as a full listening experience, is more impactful than the first. I think the songs of the first half are titans of of song writing yeah. and production and performance. But I think that as a cohesive um, experience, the second half there from Red Hill Mining Town and Mothers of the Disappeared, I think it's a more thought-provoking and interesting listen. Do I wish that they had spread out those first three tracks throughout the album? I don't know, because then that would change the whole album. It would make it very different, but it's not... A concept album in the sense of the wall where you've got a flowing narrative throughout you know and strong literal literal musical themes that they come back to with different characters or different situations it's very much um it's very much supposed to be a duality because bono the working title of the album was the two americas bono was obsessed with the idea of america as like a utopia and america as a desert and those are the two clashing um 
images that they had in their head throughout the process of making this album. Yeah. So, so I would say, I guess maybe what I said is a little off. I think the track list is good in terms of... Like, I wouldn't change the track list. I just kind of wish I liked the last half of the... I wish the second half was better. Like, I, I don't would, know. Like, or you wish that the first half was worse. Like, there's yeah. just... Because you can't compare to those first four tracks. I think his writing is probably better on the second half. But musically, in terms of hook and everything, it's just not the same. You just can't beat how catchy and how memorable those first four so, tracks are. What do we have here? Jason's eating a giant football-sized Kinder Egg. There appears to be a nice little Yeti. And, uh... What is that? <laughs> That's an it's a appendage of some sort, ladies and gentlemen, and I intend to get to the tip of it. I mean No. The bottom of it? Sure. The end of it? Maybe it's a little it's like a little so, brush. Does yeah. he have like a paintbrush? Yeah, he well, I don't know. So then he's from kind here, of a he cute has, little dude. Maybe he's he has like, this. Is this paint? Yeah, I think this is paint. Oh my word, ladies oh, and gentlemen. Man. We could make some art for you here today. Maybe we should paint this and um, then post a picture on there. I would say that I would say that this, The Joshua Tree, is one of three essential U2 albums that every so-called music fan should at least attempt to get into. The I think the, being Josh, the Joshua Tree, Action Baby, Baby, and Pop. Pop. Yeah. Three unbelievably good albums. Um, I was very impressed with how well this album held up. It's got, I wrote down here, a mythic production quality. That oh yeah toes like, the line between roughness and and production and the smoothness that all bands dream of. Like, it's got just enough polish in the oh, right yeah. spots. It's got just enough roughness in the right parts. My word, hey. <laughs> but like ripped no, for but like your ears. Daniel Langlois and like Brian Eno. Like I don't know that there's a better pairing ever. Like. And they said as well that um, much of this album was recorded live. I'd be interested to uh, to listen to this album and then try and sync up a metronome with the songs and see if they're really playing truly live with no metronome. You know, if the metronome yeah. strayed a little bit. I mean, drummer might have had a click too. Yeah, I know, but I'm just saying. I'd be interested to yeah. find out, you know, what they were, uh, what they were doing. Also, how are we for time? We're at like 30 minutes, okay. but we'll cut out some of that in the, in the first... Just kidding, everybody. We don't cut out anything. We <laughs> do no editing here. Um, also, I'd just like to say they've got uh, the bonus CD with the uh, B-side tracks, including Luminous Times or Hold On to Love. My word. Oh, yeah. What a tune that is. Oh, my gosh. Oh, yeah. That song's so good. Funny that I think they put that on one of the YouTube best of oh. albums, but it didn't get on the album itself. Oh, it's a B-side, you know. I can't I can't believe that it didn't make it onto the... Because that is... It's better than half the songs on the album. Whew. U2 is one of those bands where no matter how much bad they do, and I feel like they're, they are a shadow of what they were. They're, they're not a shadow of what they were. They're a parody of what they were. For that the, said, I do like their newest album. I like their newest album fine. But when you listen to their newest album and then you listen to the Joshua Tree, oh, yeah. oh. they have fallen a long way, baby. But And that's what I'm saying. The, at, at the best points of their career, like the three albums I mentioned, you two have really walked the tightrope between polish and raw, unfettered emotion. Mm-hmm. 
And on all three of those albums, I think that is easily the clearest examples of that. Um, now, All That You Can't Leave Behind might be a an album of great songs, but it, it lacks those performances. I do love it, though. And the honesty that the other three albums have. Um, I think that's pretty much all I've got to say. And in parting, I'll share one interesting anecdote. As I was dredging through the extensive Wikipedia entry on this album, um, I was looking around at the different songs themselves and going to the, those songs' Wikipedia pages, and I was astonished. I think it was it was at least two or three songs that I was looking at that got covered by heavy metal bands, like Anthrax kind of thing. And I just thought, wow, what a strong testament to the universality of the songs that are on these this album and how how just straight good they are. Is it on Wikipedia? Yeah, and it doesn't matter. I'm gonna look. It's on it's on the Wikipedia for like individual songs though, so oh. you can't get it without Wi-Fi. But it's just a testament to how just straight good the songs are, and no matter what genre they're played in. So I thought that was like just a really interesting little anecdote kind of thing. Now I have to go to the bathroom desperately. So if you'd like to do whatever you'd like to do, talk about the album a little more, closing thoughts, I need to go goodbye. A mushroom cut for a little while. Um, no softening those bangs whatsoever. Um, and he's here with us today. Move over, so please insane. welcome Whoopi Goldberg. There's a new fastest man in town. So, right down 36 minutes was when you left? Mm-mm. 34. 34? Right down really? when I left. So, I talked the whole time, mm-hmm. but with varying quality because... And I said this, too. I was like, you know what? If you're not smart enough or creative enough to talk long enough, that's what the snip tool is for, baby. Yeah. Okay, on to the second half. And we wow, are... the Joshua Tree is U2's best-selling album. I thought Actune Baby was... <laughs> Is among the best-selling albums of all time. It ranks as one of the best-selling albums in the U.S. in '95. The RIAA, whoever they are, certified it ten times platinum for shipping ten million units, and the album subsequently received the Diamond Award for reaching the level. Similarly, the Canadian certified diamond in Canada, which is one million, the thirty-sixth highest-selling record in the U.K. Okay, let's move on, man. Ow. <laughs> okay. Oh, okay. hey. Oh, by the way, high five. Shout out to Ben Siebert if you're listening to this, brother. Awkward pause just for you. Uh, okay, Goodwill Hunting. Moving which, forward a decade. Which is a film I was. Uh, forced to listen listen to <laughs> uh, he just wouldn't open his eyes i was like you gotta watch it great you have to watch it he's like you can't no, make me no i'm not gonna watch it <laughs> you can't make me look i don't know why i went into that i relapsed into a childlike state uh suppress memories okay so <laughs> goodwill hunting is as the Wikipedia page says, a 1997 America drama film directed by... Do you say it? Gus Van Sant? Gus it, Van Sant. It's not like Guy or something. I mean, I don't think so. Where's my phone? 
Gus Van Sant. I think it's Gus. Okay. I'd say Gus. Um, and starring Robin Williams, Matt Damon, Bean Affleck, Mini Driver, and Stellan Skarsgård. I would also throw Casey Affleck in there. And, um, and of course, uh, a deviled egg. <laughs> I, can't, um, I can't remember what I was going to say. Danny DeVito. That's what I was going to oh, say. Oh, okay. Uh, but I said a deviled egg instead. <laughs> Same thing. <laughs> they have similar oh, figures. Oh, man. Uh, the movie was written by Ben Affleck and Matt Damon with Damon in the title role. The film follows 20-year-old South Boston laborer Will Hunting, an unrecognized genius who, as part of a deferred prosecution agreement, becomes a client of a therapist and studies advanced mathematics. And I'm going to leave the rest of it out because we don't want to get into spoilers. But I mean, I think that's actually a nice... (sighs) Let me review it first, by the way. Okay. Are you... Were you going into your review there? I was, because we just heard your review of the album. I guess that's true, isn't it? Frick. No, I'm going to go first. Okay. Because I think... I think when somebody... When somebody reads their review first, it changes my review when I'm going second. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I guess. I mean, it changes the nature of my delivery, but not my opinions. Um... Unfortunately, the first thing that I wrote down was negative. Now, I should say, overall, uh, I mean, somewhat obviously, it's such a lauded film, um, and that's the thing, when you're going, when you're going to go experience something that's critically, uh, acclaimed, um, for review purposes, and you're going in to be critical, it's, it's a mixed, um, bag of what you're expecting, right? You're Mm -hmm. expecting to be wowed by it a little bit but you're also kind of expecting to be let down by it a little bit and disappointed um too and i and i was i'd have to say uh first off is ben affleck even the same person my word does he look different holy moses matt damon i mean except for the hair this movie could have been shot you know last week but ben affleck I don't even know what it is because it's not like he looks really old now, but he just... What happened, Ben? His face is so smooth. Yeah, but like what what happened? Because I've seen him in in various roles uh, over the years and he just... He looks so bored and he looks so sleepy all the time. What Like he... He's really got a youthful zest to him in this movie, as do all the characters. The rapport between... I'd say Casey Affleck, Ben Affleck, and um, my boy, what's his face? Matty D. Yeah. Matt Damon. All, like, very genuine chemistry between those three, uh, who are kind of like a little gang of hoodlums, I guess you could say. Uh, and it's just them three, right? No, there's the ginger who only gets named, like, once. Oh, that's right. Yeah, I'm gonna, kind up, of a, I'm gonna look up his name while we talk. I did like him. He seemed kind of like the, um... The, Let me jump in in a second. Okay, here. he seemed kind of like the older brother of the group, who who was kind of slowly detaching as he grew mm-hmm. up, as he grew up a little bit ahead of them. But that was kind of that's kind of weird. Like I completely forgot about that guy, um, Cole Hauser. Cole Hauser. Okay, shout out to you, man. You Can haven't I, you haven't gotten the rep you deserve. One one of my first thoughts was also negative, and I was like, why was he there? He doesn't really serve any purpose. But then I thought, 
not naming names. I was like, every friend group has the one guy who's just kind of there sometimes. And you feel like you don't know him. Like, he's not one of the boys, but he's still there kind of thing. And so, I actually enjoyed him. And I think he was a good actor. I think he was definitely, like I said... Additive. He No, I think he was um, kind of uh, emblematic. Or he was a little bit of foreshadowing for what was going to happen later in the film. No spoilers. But, uh, yeah, because, you know, he was beginning to move on. Yeah. You could see he carried himself a little more, a bit more mature and his character was a bit older than uh, the Affleck brothers or Mr. Damon. Um, a positive note, the conversations in the movie are shot really beautifully. Mm. Like, they're, they're somewhat inconsistent in how they're shot. I agree. Which bothered me from time to time. But the close-ups of people's faces, really, really gorgeous. Like, yeah. And that really took me by surprise. But that's a very important thing when it's a drama. Like, it, as, uh, as you said, when the uh, sense of um, action, as it were, is mainly coming from, uh, from conversations between the characters. And speaking of action, there's a fight scene in a... Um, basketball court mm-hmm. really awfully shot yes i thought i was i was watching and i was like is this really the best they could do it like yeah i could walk up i could come over to you right now and fake punch you and go and like just swing my fist <laughs> through the air past your face and make the sound and, yeah and it would look more real than what they what they did oh yeah it's now brutal. it's not i mean it's not die it's not an action movie it's not what the the film hinges on but it was really, like, uh, in a moment that was meant to be, hey, these guys are kind of volatile, loose cannon kind of kids. I was just chuckling, going, is this the, like, w- did the choreographer have a nap? Like, what, wh- it, uh, and it's, I don't know, it was just so weird. Yeah. And, and I mean, and like it's slow motion, and there's the face, the like Casey yeah. Affleck's like, oh, and it really, really, really jarring. didn't fit with the rest of the film in terms of tone or how it was shot or anything. Because there would have been a way to shoot that fight sequence that mirrored the conversation sequence, and that would have been interesting. Yeah, that's true. But they didn't. They uh, completely departed from the aesthetic that they had established already. Um, the uh, the two professor characters I'm kind of all over the place on this because I didn't really arrange my notes in like a linear fashion mm-hmm. um, the the conversation between Stellan Skarsgård who plays uh, the math professor Jero and, Lambeau yeah and uh, Robin Williams uh, character they have conversations about Matt Damon's character I found them a little too on the nose and a little too explanatory in places where they didn't need to be um, and just a little clumsily written. Now, this okay. film, I do believe, you can check for me there, was written by Matt Damon and Ben Affleck? Yeah, it was. And so that would explain it. They're young guys. I'm sure it was edited by somebody who had more experience, but it, it was a little exposition-y, exposition-heavy. Uh, Robin Williams, obviously the best part of the mm. movie in terms of acting. My what a, Like, what, what, a, what a guy. Um, it, Obviously, uh, now that he's departed, I think everybody goes back and revises and goes, oh, Robin 
Robin Williams yeah. is the best ever. But he really, really is oh, yeah. really, really good. And he he could make he could take a, a post notes worth of of dialogue and character and make it into a living, breathing person that yeah. you believe in and who you feel like you know, right? Yeah. And even for somebody, um, you think it's a spoiler? I would, like we said, I think first. Do you say first quarter of the movie? Yeah, which he's it's not, not a in. Spoiler, because it's in. Yeah, I guess it's, that it's part of his yeah, character. It happens so before his, the movie. His wife has passed away, and he's very sad about that. And that's a very cliched place to, to play for. But he really, really makes it work. And sadly, I can't say the same for Matt Damon. I feel like he did not play the abused foster child as well as he might have. Not a lot of nuance uh, in that not regard. Not much nuance at all. There is a scene where he is arguing with his girlfriend, who and she, Minnie Driver. Why do why do we not see her in more stuff? She was awesome. I thought very. I thought she was convincing, um, especially okay. when when he when he leaves her and then she breaks down. I I thought she like that portrayal was like very very nicely executed. Mm-hmm. Um. And there were there were some points uh, where when they're speaking in the bar and stuff that I was kind of rolling my eyes or whatever. But I really thought that she was, she showed a lot of promise as a young yeah um, actress. I think she's in quite a bit of stuff, but yeah, I, I couldn't so, name but, something else as no, someone who's not but very I, formed. But the uh, still the argument that they have um, in her room or whatever, I was de- it was. I could hear myself rolling my eyes. Yeah, That's how hard absolutely. I was rolling my eyes. It's like, oh, this is so melodramatic, and it's just, it was kind of way over the top. And it was like, let's see how many tropes we can cram in here. Um, and that being said, like, there's a lot of stuff not to like, but there's still a lot of stuff to like. It's charming, right? None, none of the rough edges make me dislike it. Casey Affleck's character, who's in the movie... <laughs> I love sol- him. ...solely for comedic relief. I said to you, and you said you didn't notice this, at one point, um, he's kind of speaking uh, in the background of another conversation, and he says, <laughs> you know, so this chick tells me I got a receding hairline, and I could lose a few pounds, and I say to her, shove off, or whatever he says... And then for the rest of the for the rest of the movie, though nothing more is said on that, he's wearing hats to cover up I didn't his notice that cover before. up what he That's thinks awesome. might be a receding hairline. Um, and he's he's in the movie solely for comedic also, benefit. Also, I think that the chick told him to gain a few pounds, not to lose, because he's really skinny. Maybe, yeah. Anyways, Karen. Um, he's in there. The comedic elements are really, really nicely doled out. Like over. natural, right? They're so natural. Yeah. Um, they never feel. Uh, Dad was watching uh, Civil War for whatever reason, and the comedic quips and stuff in that movie. I was just like banging my head against a table because it's like well, you can't. A superhero movie you sometimes. can't just take a stupid one-liner and just wedge it in like every ten minutes because oh, comedy break. Bah, oh, but they like, can. Oh, comedy break. Bah. I mean, that's what sells, but it's just there's no flow to it. There's no rhythm to it. Um, the comedic elements in Goodwill Hunting are very nicely oh, yeah. underplayed and very subtle, and really, as a result of that, pleasing and believable and memorable. Um, there is a weird moment where, um, let me see if I can. Um, ben Affleck's character's in an interview situation, and then it cuts to him being in. Uh, 
a session with Robin Williams' character, but he continues speaking the same dialogue strand. Does that make sense? Uh-huh. So it's yeah. like it cuts from being first person uh, to narration almost. And there's like a really weird shift in uh, the audio quality from one scene to another. I didn't notice that. Um, that that was that's just like one of the little uh, rough edges in the movie. Um, I'm not really sure how I feel about the ending of it in general, which obviously we're not going to talk about explicitly. Um, I didn't love it. Didn't hate it. Yeah, it was it was a fine. Uh, you know. Yeah, it was it was weird. I found the ending to be both corny and m- melancholic. Yeah, and there was I, I I don't know what I would have preferred. Yeah, but I feel like that wouldn't it wouldn't have been my first choice. This ending, uh, and then you know I think really in clo- it's it's a very charming film. Um, and there's a lot that I that I actually did end up taking exception to. Um. But I think the charm uh, really defeats any of the rough edges that it has. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Matt Damon's character, the central character, uh, Will Hunting, I almost just called him Good Will Hunting straight up. I think Will Hunting's character is very uneven and slightly unbalanced and parts of his, like he has like violent tendencies that are completely ignored from the therapy standpoint. And then, uh, I think that's just because Robin Williams has like a different tact. He does, but I, as a viewer, I want that to yeah. be addressed. The fact that he's like, you know, there should be some normalcy. Yeah, he's easily provoked and just beats the snot out of people. Mm-hmm. Like that's something you'd like to, as a yeah. viewer, you'd like to see that addressed. You'd like to see him tested and then hold back from yeah. engaging in a conflict like that. And you never really see that. Um, but yeah, really charming movie. Uh, definitely not one of my favorite movies of all time, or even close to it. But a really, really solidly, solidly acted and decently well written movie, uh, and a and a and a unique premise. Yeah. Your thoughts? I could tell from your. Uh, I could tell from your face that you don't like Mini Driver at all. So um, I'm gonna start with my cons. First of all, I want to say a totally minor thing. I'm going to take off. I have to take off my shirt. A totally minor thing that... It's so hot. A totally minor thing that bugged me, like, a lot, and it really doesn't matter. But the one time, um, Mini Driver and uh, Matt Damon are going out, like, on a date or whatever. Uh And they're like, what should we do? And typically the movie has, like, this more... Like, they're either in the ghetto or the university or whatever. And then they go see hound racing. And I was just like, what a non sequitur that was. Like, she's rich or whatever. Um, And that's really not a serious complaint at all. But both times I watched it, I was like, where did this come from? And where did it go? Like, she never even mentions hounds again. I don't know. Um, Let's see. So, Minnie Driver, I have no beef with her as an actress. I think there were times when she was, like, really charming. And I, like, liked her character. And she seemed, like, genuine and real in a way. I think the direction and writing and character around her sucks. Um, that's one of the like my least favorite parts of the movie. I feel like her character was underdeveloped. Um, 
Although to say that implies that it was developed to some extent. I feel like she, <laughs> like, how would I describe her? She's this girl. She's his girlfriend. She's a girl. She's rich. Now they set her up like, as being very, um, not as intelligent as him, but still, yeah, but more dedicated. Um, they try and make her more balanced, but she's not like balanced. I'm saying mm-hmm. ment- like mature, but she's really not. She just doesn't seem like she has a lot of personality like Mm -hmm. and she's there are scenes when she's charming and stuff but they just didn't write any built so like if there's ever tension surrounding her i just found it hard to care about her at all um now you and i are never ever 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 ones to go oh and she's the she's the only female in the film and i take exception to that but she is the only female in the film happy feminism day and yeah it's we're recording this on international women's day so if you're a woman, happy birthday. Hug yourself. Anyway, uh, <laughs> that came off as, mild, as slightly <laughs> passive-aggressive. We love women. Yep. Women I are great. definitely don't love men, yep. if you know. Also, <laughs> we totally forgot to do our <laughs> theme music. So our theme music's going to be the closer. <laughs> okay. um, and let's not talk about green. No, yeah, we'll talk know. about green. Fine. It's fine. People, it's will, people will either listen or they won't. They won't. Um, yeah, nobody's literally... No- if you're if listening you listen to this, this right now... Type um, in Kleenex. No, type in... Um, oh, not Kleenex? <laughs> no, type in I am your puppet sponge lord into the <laughs> comments of wherever you're listening to this or send it to our Facebook page so we know you care. <laughs> That's I am your puppet sponge lord. <laughs> um, With an exclamation mark. Probably. Yeah. And maybe a smiley. Okay. Who's, is this your review or is this my review? What's this your is my review? review. I, I was just... No, no, I'm just kidding. It, I, I do agree with you. I think that as the film's leading lady, she did deserve... Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. She deserved a little bit more... I think one of my big beefs with the film is everybody just seems kind of weirdly tropey. Like, the two Affleck yeah. brothers, we really don't know, like, literally anything about who they are, where they come from. Matt Damon's a foster kid who yeah. has issues. Robin uh, Williams' wife is dead. Robin Williams' wife died. Uh, He's the unappreciated, like, genius kind of thing. And and his girlfriend's uh, the, inher- the inheritor, yeah. the heir of a family fortune, and her father died when she was 13. Yeah. And there's even a spot where she goes, don't you think I'd do yeah. anything to uh, get him oh back? Oh my goodness. It's like, it was like, uh, yeah. So Awkward. it's like, everybody's had somebody die. Time to check Facebook. Yeah. <laughs> um, that said, I'm going to get into some more good things. The movie's not really about the plot, which I think is a decent carrier, but not outstanding. Um, it's more about character interaction, both verbal and nonverbal. Like, I think just the little... Like, you can tell they know each other so well. Like, when uh, Ben Affleck, like, goes up and knocks on Matt Damon's door, and then Matt Damon comes out, and he hands him a little Dunkin' Donuts coffee, and they, like, kind of just wordlessly go out to their car. Yeah, moments like, like that were there's really There's a familiarity nice, yeah. there. Yeah. Um, I think the conversations are, like, really good, like, super well written. I think everybody acted out the conversations well. Mm-hmm. Um, the dialogue, we call that. Yeah. <laughs> In writing. <laughs> um... But, yes and no. Like, I feel like when I talk about conversations, it's like a one-on-one thing. Like, there weren't that many group discussions. And when there were, they always had more of, like, this party feel. 
which is awesome, like whenever they're in bars. But other than that, very seldom are there more than two people talking, like almost never. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, um, and that's just kind of how, uh, what movie, I think it's Pulp Fiction. Yeah. Where, uh, yeah, it is Pulp Fiction, where they say there are never more than two people talking at a time. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's just good writing 101 to avoid you know big group discussions yeah stuff like that because it just doesn't track as well Um, but i agree the movie blends like tension and emotion um with humor like so well like Mm -hmm. right at the beginning there's a scene in the bar um when some Harvard guy tries to make Ben Affleck's like blue collar character look bad and then Matt Damon steps in and like shows this guy up um and then he goes up to the window where the guy's the guy's like sitting inside and he goes up to the window with the girl's phone number later in the evening and you know he's like do you like apples do you like apples and he's like yeah and he's like how do you like these apples and you're just like yeah Matt show him like that guy's a jerk um and I think it's really easy to root for characters like that, even though when you do pick them apart, I totally agree with you that, like, Matt Damon seems a little off-kilter. Like, he has these violent tendencies, but he's not, like, brooding or, like, I don't know. He just doesn't he, seem... He doesn't, he doesn't seem, sell it. He doesn't seem as troubled as he should yeah. if he's really as troubled as he pretends to be in some scenes, and he doesn't seem as strong or i don't know if strong yeah. strong's not the right but you know what i mean he doesn't seem as un as yeah. not troubled as he should if yeah. he's really as jovial I, I don't but know. he doesn't it's, seem like he's hiding it either like it's just they try to have their cake and eat it too yeah. in the in terms of his character um, which i can i can respect you don't yeah. want the movie to be like a plotting and they do pull it off like it's it's i don't think it's supposed to be a yeah. you know um what else uh, i think character study I think Robin Williams' monologues are so good. That scene when they're sitting out in the park, it's the movie poster. Um, And, you know, he's like, if I asked you about love, you'd quote me Shakespeare, but you don't know what it's like to look at a woman and feel truly vulnerable. Like, he just sells these lines. Robin Williams Um, is amazing. Like, he he is, like, a hundred percent believable. Yeah. Like, a hundred percent believable. Um, something that you didn't touch on that I feel was maybe my favorite part of the movie, to be honest with you, or close. Um, and part of this is where I am in life as like a student towards the end of my high school career is I think that the movie posed like very, very thought provoking topics on. So Matt Damon, this isn't a spoiler. This is like back of the DVD first 15 minutes stuff. Um, he's like working as a janitor, but he's really a genius. And part of him wants like to... me. Yeah, exactly. Part of him wants to pursue and be like this advanced mathematician. And, but then he also talks about, you know, like there's honor in laying bricks or I'm fixing someone's car so they can get to work in the morning. Like there's honor in that. And I think the movie tackles these really interesting topics of what is your responsibility or obligation to the world? If you have these skills, do you have to pursue them or can you just get a job that has like simple gratification um there are some characters in the movie that are trying to force him to use his genius to help the world and then there are other characters who just want him to do kind of like what makes him happy i did find the uh juxtaposition between the possessors the juxtaposition yeah devil and angel on the shoulder kind of thing but they're not even like they just yeah they're both in in the end they kind of both want the same thing for him yeah 
but they're still opposing each other. And those two um, viewpoints were very, very well presented. Yeah. Especially in a couple scenes. Um. So, yeah, I found that was one of my favorite parts of the movie is I thought it never came off like a movie that was like this artist, like, you're going to be thinking about this afterwards. But I did find myself thinking long about the things they discussed. Um, something else you didn't mention that I loved, I feel like the sets were awesome, even though they were, like, pretty low-key. Like, Matt Damon lives in this super crappy house, like, in the ghetto kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and, like, the perf- like uh, Robin Williams' character, his, like, office is full of these neat little details and books and stuff like that. I just think it was well done. Yeah, um, Robin Williams' character's office is definitely a really nice uh, analog to his life yeah. as a whole and what he's kind of become as a person. Yeah. Um, a nice analog. What a yeah, piece closing, of scum I, I think it was like a very, very good movie and it would be borderline one of my favorite movies of all time. I don't know that it is. It might be like top 25 material, I think. Um, I loved it. If, yeah. I have very few cons listed. Um, so, this has been the Good Ship Brothership. Is that what it's called? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this has been the Good Ship Brothership, episode six, The Shippening. Um,. Yeah, guys, we're um, Can we're you doing grab the theme music. Yeah, please? we're doing very well, and uh, we are coming up on our on on a big milestone that we're very Don't excited let on about. Too much though, it's, it's supposed to be a yep, surprise. and we're gearing up for a huge celebration. Yeah. So, but just think binary code, something to do with binary code, and Waffle House. So. With that in mind, thank you, Tom. Thank Thanks, you, Johnny. Johnny. I um, watched a great I'm video. I'm wearing that fur coat that you sent me right now. I watched an excellent video with our two um, Radiohead benefactors. Oh, did it. you? I did, legitimately. Yeah. And they're playing some uh, songs from their, their band. I I understand they have a band going. Oh. And they were sounding pretty decent. Oh, and it was man. The two of them sitting they're on like so a, couple, a couple benches with guitars and a drum machine. Yeah. You know, they keep hitting me up and wanting to collab, and I'm like, normally I don't collab with lesser-known people, but maybe. Welcome to the show. <laughs> An hour plus in. Hour and we're, five minutes. We're going to cut some of that out, maybe. And then add it back in when we do the advertising. The advertising will have to be under five seconds. <laughs> it's going to be like... This episode of The Good Ship Brothership is brought to you by The Good Ship Brothership. <laughs> now on with the show. You ever think about what life would be like if you woke up tomorrow ten years younger? Oh, it'd be awesome. No, it'd be weird. No, like, I don't mean ten years behind in time. Like, you were just ten years younger. And <laughs> I looked over at you and I was like, what happened? Do you have a dirt stash and a bowl cut? I didn't really have a bowl cut. No. Okay, so now we're going to quickly uh, deride Lord for ah. her single. Jason, we can do this. Okay. Don't be a woosie. Lord released a single called Green Light. It's three years It's like too an late. orange light IMO. Yeah. It's 
it, how long has it been since her last? Three and a half years. Three and a half years since her last. So call it four years. We're not this, typically pop fans at all. Yeah. We both really like Lord. Yeah, we both really liked heroin. Uh, pure heroin. We both really like heroin, guys. <laughs> uh, but I think everybody does, don't they? Speaking of Tom York and Johnny Greenwood, uh, thanks, hey. guys. <laughs> um, everybody liked Pure Heroin as an album. Yeah, uh, like, it was just good. It just was. Yeah, it connected right place, right time. She waits four years to make a follow-up and i know you've heard me rant on this like many times but maybe the people listening haven't so make it quick she's really young she's younger than me i'm 22 she's younger than me and she waits four years to put out a follow-up are you kidding me four years when you've got fans all over the world who have given you millions of dollars for your first album and the way that you give back to them is by f- with four years of silence. Three and a half. It's going to be four pretty much by the time the album comes out. So I'm going to say four. Yes. It just seems rude and self-absorbed. And it shows... I mean, I understand you're touring and whatnot. But it shows a bit of a lack of work ethic, I think. In terms of... Um, you don't need that much time. You know? Like... I've released at least an album a year since I got into music, pretty much. Um, and and many times I've released more than one album in a year. And I'm not saying that they're better than her albums by any stretch of the imagination. Like, completely don't get me wrong there. But I'm just saying the creative process, though different for everybody, it just, you sit and you apply yourself. It's hard work. But you go into the studio, you apply yourself, you write ten new songs... You get them recorded with the millions of dollars your fans are giving you, and then you give back to the fans. And I know it's a different world. I know it's not the same process as it once was, but you look at a band like the Beatles who toured nonstop and then would go straight back into the studio and bang out a new album in like a matter of weeks almost. And each of their albums, I think they released seven or something, are the most celebrated albums in literally popular music today. And I just find it sickening that this is like a thing that a young musician is allowed to do after a stellar debut to just drop off. It's a stupid view and there it's a stupid view. It's a stupid move in my view because you want to get out there, you want to make an impression and then you want to subvert that impression in some way and three and a half four years of radio silence i don't i don't know exactly why it bothers me so much but i just think you're young are you out of ideas i've been thinking of this more um lately and i totally disagree with you actually um i think i was thinking what is the artist's obligation to they're consumers. Um, and I was thinking, and I was like, Lord owes me nothing. What have I given her? I gave her like $10 and then she gave me an album. So we're square. Um, she said, you know, like, I don't want to release another album until I have something worth saying, which I totally get behind. That said, if green light is your definition of worth saying, maybe you should have waited another four years. Um, however, 
I don't really have a problem with a big gap. I think it's a bad PR move. Um, and I think it's a bad move for your creative process because I find there's a balance between um, waiting until inspiration strikes, but then also just letting yourself stagnate entirely. I think if you wait, even if you wait two years until you start writing again, you do lose that muscle. And I think it is something that can be atrophied kind of thing. Um, but I mean, I'm not like, I don't think it's rude of her. and I don't think she owes it to her fans to release another album like sooner or anything. And I think if her album is good, then I think it will have been worth it because I mean, I've had no shortage of music to listen to in the last four years. Um, so green light, I think. <laughs> Coming back to the subject at hand, after wasting ten minutes when we were like, we really go to wrap. That's up not boys. a waste, Jason. Also, you are the, you're always the one who's like, we gotta wrap it up, and I'm like, no, give the people what they want, which is us More to stop. More of us, yeah. Okay, so I think it was. I don't have that much to say on it because it's super bland. I think it's it's so boring, man. Um, like, I don't think it's bad. I think it's but, better than the Imagine Dragons single. Yeah. Um, but give me this, though. In, we'll say three. In three years, you that's the best you can come up with for a leading single. Three, three years of not releasing any new original material, would you not think, you know what I gotta do? I gotta hit him with something fresh. Something that goes, I'm not the same uh, person I was on the first uh, album. I've grown. I've matured. I've ventured off into these new exciting in the three years I've been gone and now she sounds less like herself it's with the, that super the dun, 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 the piano you know and it's just uh, instead it's like it's the kind of track that if it were on pure heroin it would be like I wouldn't really vocal I wouldn't really talk about how much I hate it but I would probably just skip it every time it came on and it would be like one of the worst tracks on the album I think it's okay, and it did do this. It did make me excited for her album because I was like, even in this version um, of Lord, which I feel this song was kind of watered down and not like the writing was fine, but the writing wasn't that good. Even in this song, like I've missed this. I've absolutely missed like having Lord, new Lord, in my lineup of music because I feel that she does bring something unique to the table, and Pure Heroin was absolutely one of my top albums of that year um of 2012 2012 2013 2014 2013 2013 surely yeah 2013 um so i don't think it was a disaster i'm not like upset it's like i'm like lord's parent it's like we're not angry we're just just disappointed disappointed. (laughs) (laughs) yeah oh for sure yeah i mean there's a there's a very good chance that she's just trying to grab ears with this um, and get on the radio Which in order to drum up support for her new album. But as somebody who seemed like a breath of fresh air into the pop scene and yeah. like somebody who is really kind of doing her own thing or a yeah. blend that yeah. became her own thing, yeah. this just seems like an absolute yeah. cop-out. Come on, I thought you would never be royals, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so much for that. Um is that it? Can we finally end this? I think we should put this to this demon baby to bed. 
and then we can get our own demon baby butts in our beds. I wanted to get up kind of early tomorrow, but that's not going to happen. It's almost midnight right now. And I still haven't flossed my teeth. 